0: an old southern saying, if preachers have to be careful when they shift from preaching to meddling, usually that distinction is a bit kind of as a humorous joke. But where you tend to run afoul of that, where you tend to run into that shift from preaching into meddling, is when you stop talking about things in theory and start talking about things in particular or specific, and specifically the things I struggle with. The things that I don't like to hear about myself and the things that I don't like to hear about others. In Titus chapter 2, I don't see a world in which this was originally delivered, in which it didn't shift from preaching to meddling. Uh, as we've kind of moved out of the realm of theory and into the realm of practicality, pragmatics. I just love the, the idea of a young pastor. He's just showed up at his first year, not first call, but maybe first call. He's getting ready to appoint elders so the church can grow. And his mentor sends him a letter and it says, be sure to tell all the old ladies not to be drunk gossips. Wow. That's the sermon you want to lead with. Fair enough, brother. But our hope here is not in Paul's wisdom or in Titus' wisdom. Thank the Lord, it is in the wisdom of God. As he knew, that's exactly what needed to be proclaimed to the people of God. Now, we do have to, I guess, uh, this passage more than most requires a little bit of background. Last week, we looked at the false teachers uh, that he's having to kind of confront. Uh, You remember the flow of the book is the standard greeting, verses 1 through 4. Then the elders, the qualifications for elder that are supposed to be ordained and installed, verses 5 through 9. And then verses 10 through 16 is an explanation of what the problem is that has to be corrected. What are the the weaknesses? What are the the false teachers saying that has to be addressed? We looked at it last week. They have a distorted relationship with the law and with truth and with obedience and with their passions and with the gospel. But kind of the the pinnacle idea behind this is that they're compromising God's Word. They're compromising the gospel because they are proclaiming a truth that's not really true that doesn't produce transformation. All of God's Word, if it's true, it is true because it's God's Word. But when we interact with it, it is transformative in nature. It it makes you different. You don't come away from God's Word, if you're interacting with it correctly, without some sort of change. Think about it again as if a child with finger paint when they get to the finger paint, do they ever walk away looking identical as the way they walked up? No, of course not. Where's the paint? Everywhere. Not only everywhere on them, but everywhere else as well. You're like, how did you get it inside the loaf of bread? I don't know, but you did. It's there. It is contagious changing, marking, altering the appearance, the nature of the people of God. We read Jude last week, again, my favorite book, I think, but the, the description of these false teachers is uh, they are blemishes on your love feasts. Uh, skipping ahead, they are waterless clouds. I love that illustration there. They're a thing that looks promising, but never produces any good thing. Fruitless trees wandering stars. They're, they're all talk and no action. Well, what is the action that's supposed to be happening? What, what is the transformation that the people of God are supposed to be experiencing? If, if the gospel changes us, how are we supposed to be changed? Well, that's a good question, and that's exactly what Paul then answers. And in fact, actually, again, answers it not just in the generic, but answers it in the specific. What does gospel transformation look like for me? And he gives four categories. Older men, younger men, older women, younger women, including everybody in the church. Now, you probably can… fitting with today's moment in time, identify which one of these you are. I'm with the older, young, uh, the gender's set, but you pick your age, I guess, uh, as we figure out exactly what God intends for us to be. Now, rather than working through every single command individually, uh, what I've tried to do is present a couple of themes that help kind of wrap our minds around the, the, the type of transformation that we're talking about. All right, first... Read verse 1. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. So this is that, right, that idea of doctrine, that the truth of God, God's Word, is going to produce change. This is what that change looks like. And the first thing we'll look at is that a transformed heart will begin to view people as opportunities for holiness not objects of our pleasure. I'll say that again. Transformed heart Christians should begin to see people as opportunities for holiness, not objects for our pleasure. So the the natural human condition, the fallen, the sinful human condition, is to treat other people kind of transactionally to say, what can I get out of them? How can they make my life better? I show up at the DMV. How can they make my life better? I interact with my neighbors. How can they make my life better? I interact with my friends. How can they make me happy? How can that other person improve the quality of my life? How can my spouse make me happy? it's all about me. It's, it's the me monster, right? It, it's coming out again, rearing its ugly head in our interactions with other people. And what we do in the fallen condition is every person we interact with, we define their existence as being for my pleasure. So that when you go to check out with your groceries and the lady or gentleman that's checking you out is rude to you and snaps at you and is nasty, You get your feelings hurt, and you're like, oh, how dare they? Now, we don't ever say it this clearly, but in essence, what we're saying in the back of our head is, don't they know their purpose in life is to make me happy? Why are they treating me this way? That's their job, is to make me happy. They're to be nice to me, to make me feel good about myself, to give me a discount on my groceries. How come they didn't do that? And so the Bible lays out the alternative, as, as people become not opportunities to make me happy, they become opportunities for holiness. Whether it's the gentleman in the checkout line at your grocery store, or the lady at the DMV, or your spouse, or your neighbor, or your children, all of them have been placed in your life as an opportunity for Holiness. Now, look at this. We, we don't see this one in the older men as much, but we start with the older women, uh, those uh, kind of foundational building blocks of the relationships of the church. Uh, the older women, they are in so many ways the beating heart of the relationships of the church. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior. They're to be dignified, people that are worthy of respect. And then he jumps in on them, not drunk gossips, not slanderers, or slaves to much wine. I do think it's interesting that there is nothing new under the sun. The church in Crete, same struggle that America has today. Population of people. Now, today, interestingly, we've switched solely from uh, wine to include now our antidepressants, which is functioning similarly. Uh, But we have a generation of people, an entire group of people that easily sit around, gossip about others, and try to numb their pain. And it's interesting that that's an entirely kind of self-oriented existence, one that everybody else around me exists to make me happy. Now, we do have to just spend a little time defining slander or gossip. Those are those kind of terms that everybody uses, and we only use it when somebody else is talking bad about us, right? Normally, if you ask somebody to define what gossip is, they'll say the things that other people say and hurt my feelings, and it's not something we do because, I mean, I've never gossiped. Neither have you. I understand how this works. But if we're going to be candid and honest, slander or gossip in some fashion is using other people's information for your pleasure instead of for their good. Now, some of you are self-aware enough that you know that feeling, actually, where you get a new piece of information and you're like, ooh, I can't wait to tell. Why? Why can you not wait to tell? Because it's all about your pleasure. It's your excitement. It's your joy because it's about you. You see, friends, gossip and slander both are you using someone else's information to advance your circumstances. One of my preaching professors used to say a gossip is a person who only tells the truth when it hurts worse. What a great, great definition. Someone who only tells the truth when it hurts worse. It's because it's about using other people's information for yourself, for your own desires, for your own delight. Now, I do think it's interesting that Titus, the pastor, is charged to start in first illustration on his older ladies for saying, hey, look, some of you sit around. You try to take the edge off the pain physically because maybe you're hurting or emotionally because maybe that too. And you've turned into old bitty bodies that use other people's information to try to make yourself feel better. Boy, that is a sermon that gets you looking for a new church really quickly. But God knew what they needed, so it's right and good and true. You see, what's happening is these older women are using these relationships as a chance to make themselves feel better. Instead of using them as an opportunity to say, How could I show them the holiness of God? How could I show these people the holiness of God? How could I show them how to live? How could I encourage them? How could I edify them? How could I build them up? How could I take their weak faith and strengthen them along the way? Instead, I'm going to use their information to make me feel good. I suspect that the older women in the church tend to be one of the more observant groups of people They probably have one of the larger data sets of what's happening in the church than any other group of people. And interestingly, having the largest collection of data, rather than using that data for the glory of God, these women in the text were using it for their own delight. They're using other people to make themselves feel good. The second illustration is then jumped into in the next verse, kind of in tandem with this older women. Instead, are to be using their time with these younger women, not to kind of militarize them, not to take advantage of them, not to laugh behind kind of hands like, <laughs> have you seen how they parent? My goodness. Not to do those things, but instead, verse 4, well, in verse 3, they are to teach what is good and so train the young women to love their husbands and children. To, interestingly, what's happening is, is this, it's a training that's taking place. They're using their relationships with others to reorder correctly all of the relationships in the church. There's a reason why the older women in the church are often one of the foundational building blocks of the church. Because they have the opportunity to connect to so many other things. Older women teaching younger women and teaching younger women specifically how to love their husbands and their children. It's this contaminating relational transformation. An opportunity for younger women to even increase their love. And interestingly, to think that kind of here, Certainly, this doesn't apply to all young women. We have many faithful and godly young women, I'm sure, in this church and certainly in ours that are not yet married or have children we will never marry and have children. Praise God for you. We're thankful for you. You're a holy person. We delight in you. Interestingly, though, here he's specifically taking that idea of marriage and the idea of parenting and saying both of these things exist not for your pleasure, but for your holiness. I love that. Train the young women how to train their husbands to make them happy. No? Oh, wait, that's not it. I think I got that that wrong. It might be a translation error. Train the young women to love their husbands, to love their children. In fact, actually, verse 5, train their young women to be submissive, to their husbands. Now, is a submission a thing that, that at least on the surface at first blush, is a thing that makes a party happy? Maybe not on on the surface. In the long run, yes, it does. Actually, uh, I would contend that submission to Christ and then ultimately a biblically submissive marriage is the happiest way forward for humans uh, that are married. But on the surface, it doesn't look like it's a happy thing. On the surface, at first blush, it doesn't look like it's an enjoyable thing to have to give up control, to have to give up um, uh, the ability to run the show. Now, ultimately, in the long run, there's a great freedom in that because you're freed from certain responsibilities. But on the surface, it doesn't feel good. And what's being reorganized here is that marriage doesn't exist to make you feel good. I mean, that goes further to say love doesn't exist to make you feel good. That's a statement right there, isn't it? Romance doesn't exist to make you feel good. In fact, actually, you could go so far as to say love and romance and sex exist to teach us about the Trinity, right? They exist for holiness purposes. We're designed in relationship because our God is a God who is always in relationship, He's triune. He's never not in relationship. His relationship is one that is joy constantly with Himself. And so, He designed in marriage the relationship of holiness to reflect Him. Doesn't stop with our young women, continues to young men. Verses 7-8, uh, there they are to be teaching, but their teaching is to be such that it's not uh, done in a way of um, abuse or a way in which power is lorded over others, but instead it's done with sound speech that cannot be condemned. It's done in a way in which holiness permeates and holiness is uh, exuding from their very speech the way they interact with one another. The highlight, though, the most shocking, at least for our kind of postmodern sensibilities, is verse 9. And depending on which version of the ESV you have, they've used one of the two different words that are translated here. Uh, this word uh, in the original is kind of, there's not a, an accurate English word. It's somewhere between two words. One word is what they translate the literally, this bondservants, Alfred with Batman, servant, The other word is slave. Uh, And they don't use the word slave because of the kind of racial um, baggage that we have, we think, you know, 1850s in America, which is not the correct term. Uh, But it's something stronger than just a servant. That's why all of your older translations use the word slave. And interestingly, what does the Bible say to slaves? Slaves. Your relationships with other people even your masters are an opportunity for you to display the holiness of God Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything They are to be well-pleasing not argumentative not pilfering, but showing all good faith. They are to be those people that live in such a way that they're not pushing forth their own desires, right? If, if I were in those shoes, I'd want to be argumentative. I'd want to steal at every given opportunity to make my life better because I'm a slave. I think that would be a very reasonable thought process. But interestingly, what God's saying is, is your relationship, even with your master, is one in which you have the opportunity excuse me, to display the holiness of God. We as God's people have to think about our lives differently. People are not things for consumption. They're not things to be enjoyed, consumed, and then thrown away. Too often, we, in kind of our postmodern times, we think about our relationships with people. And I mean people in here, but people in your neighborhood, people that you meet at the grocery store, all humans, we think of them kind of similarly to like buying music on iTunes. Right? I, I spend a little bit of energy, it gets me pleasure, and when I'm done with it, I can just discard it or binge-watching a TV show on Netflix. I can, I can watch four or five episodes as long as they make me happy, but there's a point where I'm just done with it, I'm tired of it, and I'll just move on. And then I'm done because it's all about my pleasure. And too often, that's how we think of others, is that they exist to make us happy. Friends, some of you are constantly irritated with other people constantly angry with other people, constantly frustrated with other people. And the reason why is because you've fallen into the trap that they exist to make you happy. And when they don't, you get angry with them. And guess what? They don't make you very happy, so you're always angry with them. This is one trend we're seeing in some of the younger generations is this strong push toward what is deemed introversion. Introversion. I'm just tired of other people. I just need to be away and need to be recharged. Now, I'm not saying there aren't introverts. There absolutely are. But particularly in our younger generations, we're watching what is actually just selfishness being labeled as introversion. I need a break from people because I'm irritated with them. Why am I irritated with them? Because they all exist to make me happy and they haven't done a very good job. In fact, actually, no, instead, all of your relationships exist for you to glorify God for you to encourage, for you to minister. Be on the lookout for the distinction between happiness and holiness in your own heart with people. Now, interestingly, I think the Lord's pretty clear that if you seek first the kingdom of God, guess what gets added to you? All the secondary blessings. If you pursue happiness at other, in and through other people, if that's your goal, you'll never be happy with them. But interestingly, if you pursue holiness happiness often follows. Now, this is one of the great challenges in a church like this as we're growing. Praise God. Uh, we looked at the role at our session meeting last week and realized that uh, we actually have actively doubled since the beginning of COVID. The first uh, Sunday of March, we've actually fully 100% doubled since then, uh, that March of COVID. And it's hard for us as a church that's doubled in that time To cultivate those friendships, those relationships, and those uh, kind of loving kind of ministry connections with one another. In fact, actually, I'll give you a little bit of a spoiler. Spoiler alert. Uh, We're going to have a change coming in our calendar next year. A major change, actually, a couple of major changes in how the calendar of this church is going to operate as our session is. Actively working to figure out how we as a body can increase those holy interactions with one another. How to build each other up in holiness and in grace. When people don't exist for our happiness, They exist for our holiness. Interestingly, second category, and this is the bigger one, I guess, in some ways, is that even our desires don't exist for our happiness. They exist for our holiness. (laughs) That's a weird thing to think, isn't it? Even my happiness doesn't exist for my happiness. My happiness exists for my holiness. Our pleasures, our desires... Become opportunities for holiness, not for means of pleasure. Now, this is where we get to see it again. Let's start back at the beginning. We'll look and go through the passage again. Older men are to be sober minded, those that are not governed by their passions. Those that don't have their emotions pulling them one way or the other; those that are tossed or turned by every wind and wave of doctrine; those that are not easily swayed, uh, swayed or slayed, uh, swayed—they're supposed to be those that are stable and strong in their mind. How unflattering! to see an old man that's constantly chasing the newest fads of the culture around. An old man that's too easily excited, that's too easily manipulated, that's too easily dominated by his passions. Instead, a man who's sober-minded, who's governed in his thought so that he's grounded and balanced, not easily pulled one way or the other, a man who is dignified, this being obviously the product of it, but here the reoccurring theme, self-control. You remember that he's on Crete. And this is an island that was known for its indulgences. Verse 12 of the previous chapter reminds us that they are uh, Cretans were liars. They are evil beasts, lazy gluttons. Uh, I love the original of that. It's just they are stomachs they're lazy stomachs, they're just they're identified by their pleasures. And so in the midst of a culture that is identified by their pleasures, Christians are to be those that have control over them. That are dominant over their pleasures, not dominated by their pleasures. This is usually kind of easy scene. Look at your own life in the areas where you cannot tell yourself no, or where you do tell yourself no, and then immediately do the other thing. Self-controlled. Governed not by the flesh, governed not by our passions, governed not by our wants or our perceived needs but governed by the very Spirit of God. Older women, it was the same thing. Here, slaves to much wine, and they found a way to dull the pain. They found a way to make their life more bearable, and so they do. And I'm not talking about proper pain management for physical ailments. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the... (laughs) The emotional distress of an aging life that hasn't fulfilled what you wanted it to fulfill. Young women, I think this is verse 5, right? Reoccurring theme self control. And even further beyond that, pure. That their lives are to be marked by a purity of spirit, a purity of action, their passions, again, not leading them into evil ways but pure. Young men, verse 6, what's that word again? (laughs) Self-controlled. What an interesting thing that all of these people groups living on an island that is defined by indulgence and pleasure are being told, hey, guess what proper doctrine looks like? Guess what the presence of Christ looks like? It looks like conquering your desires, not getting rid of them, but governing them. Is the desire for food a bad desire? No, God made it. Is the desire for intimacy a bad desire? No, God made it. Is the desire for your bed a bad desire? No, the Lord made that too. Is the desire for your children Bad, no, your spouse. No. All of these things are good things. The, the danger we run into, though, is that our desires are left unchecked. They're, not, they're left ungoverned, and these good desires then morph into bad desires. They, they become monsters that are uncontrollable and large that begin to take over and define and dominate and domineer. Those whose wants become the decision makers. It's interesting how you can look at kind of literature and uh, look at the heroes in literature. And if you kind of look at science fiction, uh, it's a a genre I used to read a lot. uh, It's interesting. You can see like our current uh, era of science fiction, a lot of the heroes are those that have all of the pleasures, have all of the desires, have all the longings, and they just figure out how to kind of make do with them. And they're these antiheroes who are just broken people, but kind of make do with their desires. But it's interesting in American culture, if you look back just 50 years Almost all of the heroes were the ones that had those desires but figured out how to tell themselves no for at least a little while. And it's interesting how we've watched in 50 years, really, a culture that's decided it's no longer good to say no to ourselves. And interestingly, all of these categories in some fashion, all these groups of people are marked by when God shows up and the spirit lives within you, you have the ability to tell yourself no, at least for a little while. Maybe not every time, but you have that ability. People are no longer for our pleasures. Even our pleasures are no longer for our pleasures. Third, and very quickly, our callings are no longer for our pleasure. Uh, This is one that I think we've watched happen. This is maybe 10 years old, I guess, at this point, where uh, my generation, i am my early 40s, my generation was raised where we told, go find a career that'll make you happy. Find something you love, and you'll never work a day in your life. Go pursue your passion. Go pursue your dreams. Uh, And it took an entire generation to really figure out that most people will not pay you for that. Uh, It may be fun, but you will starve. Uh, yet we've not done a very good job as a nation kind of changing our tune and beginning to talk to young people and say, don't worry about being happy. Worry about somebody paying you to do it. Uh, preferably enough dollars per hour that you can have, you know, a wife and kids and such. Uh, jobs are not about happiness. Callings are not about happiness. They're about holiness. They're about being placed in a, in a very specific location, in a very specific time, in a very sp- specific place. That was hard to say in order to display the glory of God. Older men, it's, again, encapsulated. They get, it's really interesting, they get the shortest kind of descriptor. I suspect that's because the older men have been largely described in the elders in the previous chapter. Theirs is the kind of shortest, most succinct section. But your older women... What's their calling to be? Is it to be for them to kind of be that quintessential southern lady who's made it and sits around and has become, you know, the tennis mom that goes out and splits a bottle of wine every afternoon and just talks about all the neighborhood gossip, as so many are prone to do? Is, is that the quintessential goal for what a woman is supposed to be when she's aged? No, no. No, I- again, even her old age is not about her happiness. It's about her usefulness in the kingdom of God. Maybe, honestly, maybe her health prevents her, and so her job is to just pray. Oh, praise God for those faithful saints. Praise God for those faithful saints that are not able to do anything but stay at home and pray for us. Pray for my preaching. Pray for the session. Pray for our elders. Pray for our church. Praise God for those people. But it's interesting, the task that Paul gives is for these older women to spend their golden years in that difficult task of going backwards in time and raising up the next generation. Teaching younger ones how to do the jobs that they themselves have finished doing. Raising children, loving and submitting to husbands. Verse 6, younger men, their jobs are no longer again uh, about themselves. It's about holiness. Interestingly, this is where uh, a different aspect of the church is then introduced. Verse 7, for young men, show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works and in your teaching. Oh, here's the teaching ministry of the church show integrity, dignity, sound speech that cannot be condemned. All of it, God's holiness in the teaching and the obedience of the young men. Again, even that awkward bit at verse 9 with the slaves, the bondservants, being transformed by the Spirit so they're able to see their location in time, their space, their calling, even as a doulos, even as a bondservant as an opportunity for holiness, for God's glory and grace. Why? Well, why does this matter? All of these things, interestingly, it's a recurring theme, particularly for the younger people, that the word of God may not be reviled. Verse 5, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Verse 8, that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Verse 10, so that God's Glory goes forward. Now, I would make a very particular note. This is a hard list, isn't it? I mean, to begin to think about other people and how to serve them, to think about my desires as opportunities to kind of tell myself no and glorify the Lord, to think about my calling as an opportunity to glorify the Lord, this is hard. But there's a reason why this actually follows on the heels of verse 1. That in your own strength, this is a task that is too big. It's impossible, actually, is the word that we would use. But we know that for God himself, nothing is impossible. Philippians 4, verse 13, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. It's slightly out of context. But again, that same idea that once the Spirit shows up, all bets are off for what you can do. All bets are off for the level of transformation that we might see. And people of God, it is the task that is laid out for us. This day, whether you are young or old, man or woman, God is calling you to use your life for holiness, not for pleasure. Let the pleasure be the byproduct, not the driving force. And if we're going to be victorious in that in any way, in any way, we have to be as close to Christ as possible. Now, what you will often find, this is just, again, 20 years of pastoring, your success in these tasks will be directly proportional to how close you are to Jesus. And I don't mean like, you know, how much you know your Bible or things like you should know your Bible. But if you are running to God, like a scared child that kind of goes and hides in, you know, her mother's robes or his mother's dress. Some of you remember that? You know, you see little kids that get all shy and nervous, and so they go hide in mom's dress. That's one of the pictures that's actually given in the Scriptures of how we are to interact with God. If we flee to his feet, finding safety right underneath him, We'll find these tasks get infinitely easier. But when we try to go way over there and kind of from a distance figure out how I'm going to be successful at it, we never will. And in fact, we could go one step further is to say that when we get to those kind of passages that deal with meddling, we'll always fail because we're not taking advantage of the power of God. We're going to prepare for the supper here as we sing in just a moment, and I would encourage you, confess your sins even as we sing, even as we prepare, so that when we come to the supper, you are strengthened for these very tasks of holiness before the Lord. Let's pray. Uh, Lord, we confess our sins We've here seen a portrait of what holiness looks like. It's a life that's devoted to obeying you and displaying your holiness in every opportunity. And we have to confess we've not done this very well, in some cases at all. We've pursued our pleasures for pleasure's sake. We've used people for our own pleasure's sake. We've even used our callings, our our jobs, our stations in life for our own pleasure's sake. And it has been to our harm and to our shame because it's sin against you. Lord, we ask that you would convict us of sin, that we might repent repent of it and be freed from it. Cleanse us from both the guilt and the power. We pray for Christ's sake. Amen.